Welcome to the Berkey Web Today podcast, part of the Eero Podcast Network. Podcasts that inform by focusing on the news and the people behind the news. My name is Edward Eero, and I am your host for Episode 8 on January 14th, 2010. Fellow Berkey buddy Mike Tarnow and I will be interviewing Nathan Schultz and Zach Caldwell with Boulder Nordic Sports of Boulder, Colorado and Portland, Maine on today's podcast. Berkey Web Today provides coverage before, during, and after the American Berkebiner Ski Race in northern Wisconsin. The podcast is a feature of the BerkeyWeb.com website where fellow Berkey buddies Tim Burke, Mike Tarnow, and I explore news and information about the race, which includes interviews with interesting individuals either involved in the race or Nordic skiing in general. Berkey Web Today podcasts can be found at the Berkey Web website or iTunes. They are also indexed at the Eero Podcast Network at epn.ero.com. We welcome your feedback, so please write to webmaster at berkeyweb.com and send in your comments or suggestions. We would love to hear from you. Before we talk with Nathan and Zach, I want to provide you with some news and information about the 37th Annual American Berkebiner Ski Race and now Nordic Skiing in general. As of today, there are 44 days to the race, which is on February 27th, 2010. Along with the podcast, we also post up news and information about the American Berkebinder and other Nordic skiing events through our Twitter and Facebook accounts. To follow our Twitter feed, go to twitter.com slash and to become a fan on Facebook, go to www.facebook.com slash today. We also have a Facebook group called BerkeyWeb. The Twitter feed is more comprehensive, but through the RSS slash blog tab on the Berkey Web Today Facebook page, you can read them both. Facebook tends to be slow in updating, however. All the posts now include other Nordic skiing events from around the world. The first Berkey and Cordy tour will be held on Saturday, January 23rd. The tour is an untimed, non-competitive open track event open to skiers age 13 and older. Both races start at the start line at Telemark Resort. Uh, the Cordy Tour follows the Berkey Trail for 22K or the Berkey Classic Trail 27K to finish at Highway 00. The Berkey Tour continues from 00 for 21K to its finish at Hatchery Park outside of Hayward. The Berkey Tour 50K participants will ski an extra loop at double O to complete the additional kilometers. Don't miss the first year of this event as you will become a Berkey Tour founder. The Berkey Tour will have many aid stations at various points along the course. The aid stations will offer water and heed electrolyte drink. Skiers are strongly encouraged, however, to carry their own additional energy products and foods as they will not be set up like the regular Berkey and Cordy events. To register for the tour, go to the Berkey website and select the events section. From the Berkey tour page, you can either register online or print out a race registration form. Registration will also be available at Telemark Resort on Friday, January 22nd from 4 to 8 p.m. and Saturday, January 23rd from 7 to 10 a.m. Also announced in Carpe Skium is that there's been some wave closures. There are 6,300 skiers registered for the Berkey, Cordelopet, and Prince Hokan events, approximately 1,400 registrants ahead of last year at this time. The following waves have reached their capacity and are now closed to new registration. They are Skate Wave 2, Skate Wave 3, and Classic Wave 7. The wave capacity is assigned to assure a quality event and uh, even skier distribution on the trail, and there is additional wave closures will be anticipated because of this. The registration cap, as announced last year, for the 2010 Berkey and Cordy is 7,500 skiers and a maximum of 250 skiers for the Prince Hoken race. Also this year is the sit-ski events, and prior to 
the first Berkey finishers on Main Street, spectators will again have the opportunity to watch physically challenged athletes use the latest adaptive ski equipment as they ski to the Berkey finish line at 9 a.m. on race day. Later in the day, several sit skiers will ski alongside Berkey skiers as they cover the final three kilometers of the course to their finish on Main Street. These athletes will begin on the far end of Lake Hayward at noon. In addition, you will have the opportunity to try sit-ski at the ski demo on Thursday and Friday at Telemark Lodge. The 2010 Skiers for Cure pins are now available. The cost of the pin is $20, with proceeds going to the National MS Society. The pin, designed by Berkey skier Kay Lum, can be purchased online at www. Wisconsin MS or WISMS.org in person at the Berkey office or at the National MS Society booth at the Berkey Skier Expo. The team competition will also return in 2010. Uh, the American Blind Skiing Foundation and the Lake Superior College in Duluth, Minnesota will be sponsoring. The team competition has been expanded to include an open category for organizations like businesses and club teams of men and women, regardless of age. The divisions include juniors, college, and open. The 2010 race guide will be available race week, and thanks to the support from the Cable Chamber of Commerce and the State Bank of Drummond, skiers and spectators will again be offered race guides. Similar to last year's Spectator Guide, the 2010 Race Guide will feature a schedule of events, busing information, wave start times, and road closure information. There will also be maps of the trail, parking areas, Telemark Resort, and the Berkey Finish Area. In an effort to reduce paper and eliminate duplicative materials, the Race Guide replaces both the Spectator Guide and the Race Information Bulletin. Skiers will receive their guide at Bib Pickup, and spectators can pick up copies at the information booth at Telemark, the Berkey office, both the Cable and Hayward Chambers of Commerce, and area hotels and resorts. There was an interesting article in FasterSkier.com that goes over the U.S. Olympic qualifying and how it works. Uh, the U.S. National Championships, which were covered through Berkey Web. Uh, Twitter and Facebook, ended last week in Anchorage, Alaska. Pete Vordenbergs, the head coach of the U.S. ski team, has his responsibility now to pick the group of athletes that will get to compete in February at the 2010 Winter Olympics in Whistler. On January 19th, his announcement will be made on the final team. In his deliberations, Wardenberg will be guided by an eight-page, 15-section U.S. Ski and Snowboard Association document that outlines the procedures used to select the team. It contains a mix of subjective and objective criteria that will steer him, but ultimately, he will have to pick most of the team himself. Right now, the U.S. has eight spots for the 2010 Olympic Winter Games, although that number could go up before the team is named on the 19th. According to USS a Nordic director, John Farah, having an equal number of men and women on the team would be ideal, but there is no guarantee of that. The top three American athletes going to Whistler have already qualified based on their results on the World Cup circuit earlier this year. The composition of the rest of the team will be primarily determined by a USSA ranking list, although Vordenberg can make exceptions if he feels that the ranking list does not fully capture athletes' potential to have good results at the games. He will be primarily relying on the most recent national rankings list, which ranks the nation's skiers based on their best results from the last calendar year. The system seems a little convoluted, since coaches' discretion technically carries more weight than the NRL in the USSA guidelines. But Farah said that this is merely to ensure that his organization doesn't get locked into making specific choices for the team based solely on the numbers. So, we will be waiting for the announcement next week. Follow Berkey Webb for the latest news.
Today we are going to interview Nathan Schultz and Zach Caldwell from Boulder Nordic Sports in Boulder, Colorado, and also Portland, Maine. Boulder Nordic Sports, which started in 2006, is dedicated to bringing world-class Nordic services to all skiers. Their shop in Portland, Maine opened in 2009. Nathan Schultz began skiing in high school, where he finished dead last in every race. His friend's enthusiasm for the sport was contagious, however, and kept him going long enough to ski at the University of Colorado, where he was a two-time NCAA All-American team captain and 1994 Scholar Athlete of the Year. He went on to a 15-year professional career with the Subaru Factory and Fisher Swick's teams, while also building a software consulting business and racing mountain bikes professionally from 1995 through 1999. He launched Boulder Nordic Sports in October 2006. Nathan lives with his wife and daughter in Boulder, Colorado. Zach Caldwell graduated from Middlebury College in 1994, where he was twice captain of the Nordic team. He began work for the fledgling New England Nordic Ski Association and grew the association for six years, working on regional development programs and coaches' education tools. In 2001, he left to start Engineered Tuning, an elite Nordic grinding service that has evolved through time and has now been wholly absorbed by Boulder Nordic Sports. Zach spent the last two years testing grinds at the Callaghan Valley Olympic venue for the U.S. ski team as part of their Olympic development program. In addition to working with skis, Zach works as a professional coach with a number of high-level American and Canadian athletes, including Chris Freeman. Zach is leading Boulder Nordic Sports efforts in ski selection, grind development, and waxing. Zach lives with his wife and their son in Boulder, Colorado. Nathan and Zach, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. Thanks a lot for having us. Yeah, thanks. We wanted to talk to you because we were quite impressed with how you are bringing first-class racing products and services to all skiers. What was your vision in starting Boulder Nordic Sports, and has that changed since you uh, opened the store in 2006? Um, This is Nathan uh, speaking. I guess it all started a long time ago when Zach and I started working together, and I think Zach had the the vision first, and, and then I came along, and we sort of both had... We, we we clicked and we we both had the same ideas and we both realized what we were capable of you know if we could bring that level of service that we were seeing at the the elite level to the you know ski service in general um that we we could make something pretty special and so that's kind of the, where the vision started and we we had a uh, sort of complementary talents and so we had a loose, a really loose partnership at first um, when Zach was in the East, and, and we launched uh, Boulder Nordic Sport in the in 2006. Um, and he, Zach, helped us out by you know getting us up to speed on the grinds really quickly. Um, and then after that, you know, it it, it sort of just evolved, and uh, we worked really closely together on on uh, ski selection and grinding for a couple years. And then um, this spring, it just turned out that uh, it was the time to really uh, make things more official. And, and Zach and Amy moved down to Boulder, and uh, it's just it's really launched since, since then. And so we've, we still have that core vision of, like, doing really cool stuff with skis, and um, that sort of just leads us to new ideas and um, opportunities that just seem to present themselves. You on the website, uh, Nathan. You talk about Natron Nordic Enterprises. So there was some lead up uh, before Boulder Nordic Sports. Could you explain that? Yeah, for sure. I was. Uh, I started uh, when I was ski racing. I was also working as a, a, a computer consultant, um, and I uh, we we just we had this idea uh, when I was a member of the the Subaru factory team. Uh, I think it was in '99. We we started talking. Uh, with Ben Hughesby and, and Pete Vordenberg and uh, myself, we uh, we wanted to launch, you know, something where we we could give 
this information that we had back to the public. And so we um, we, we launched a, a, a program of, of camps uh, in the summer that you know started out pretty small and they grew not I wouldn't say big but big enough that they needed to be a, a separate entity. And so that I, I just created a kind of a, a simple shell company. Um, and then when we launched the shop, we just used that to, to go big. I see. And, and Zach, you had engineered tuning, so talk a little bit about that business. Yeah, I mean, that started in 2002 when I bought my uh, first grinder, which is now the, the machine we've got here in Boulder. Uh, that started in 2002 when I picked up my grinder and started uh, working on learning what I'm still learning to do, which is try to make ski fast. And um, that grew directly into a relationship with Fisher as I started selecting skis, and that relationship grew into a service relationship, which uh, brought Nathan and myself together uh, with me helping the Fisher team with service after he uh, joined those guys when they split with uh, the factory team. So uh, it all kind of just fed in one direction, I guess. So when did you two first meet? I have no idea. I mean, we're we're very similar age, and and we're, you know, I I, I remember getting my butt roundly kicked by Nathan as a <laughs> ski racer, and you know, I, I had the intelligence to realize that I had different talents, I guess. <laughs> uh, but I've been, you know, I, I've I've been aware of Nathan for for years. He probably didn't didn't know me very well as a racer. I wasn't very good, but uh, I don't. I have no idea when we met. Yeah, I, I think we we probably were acquaintances for I don't know since '94 or '95 yeah. something yeah. like that, and um, then we we started working closely together. Uh, when I was on the factory team, I, you know, I I got some grinds with Zach, and and just from from that point on, it was like wow, this guy knows something that some other people don't. So um, it kind of took off from there, and we just. We uh, we have a, a similar mindset. We're we're both kind of idea guys, and uh, it's 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 bad because we feed each other um, and make it make it seem like we've got good ideas. <laughs> well, you uh, just opened a, a new shop in Portland, Maine, last year. How have things worked out with now having two shops, especially at opposite ends of the country? Uh, well, I think that the the big thing. Um, that that was just that was an opportunity that came came to us. Um, Roger Knight, who I've I've known and worked with for years, um, I've I've been trying to steal him away from his work uh, before this, and he gave me a call in in May and said, "Well, you know, I I think it might be time to do this," and um, so the opportunity was there, and we just we sort of took it. So. We had always planned on doing something in the East. We weren't quite thinking about doing it this soon, especially with, with Zach and Amy coming down to Boulder here. Um, it, we, we weren't expecting it, things to move that quickly, but the opportunity was there, and we just had to take it. And it's been um, it's been fabulous. It's been a lot of work, and we've all lost sleep over it, but Roger's been working really hard, and uh, he's, he's really launched it well, and, and I've only... Uh, we we went out there in September to help him kind of build everything out and and get things sorted. Um, I hadn't been no, nobody else had been back there to help him out until uh, last week when I went out there. So those guys have done a great job and it's it's really um, helped us kind of broaden our reach and support our eastern customers a lot better than uh, we've been able to with Zach gone and and us in Boulder. I see. How did you actually first choose the the Boulder location? Uh. <clears throat> the Boulder location was uh, it, it, we started out because it was we we're launching a cross country specific ski shop. It was pretty scary, you know. Everybody sort of uh, lifted their eyebrows when we told them what we were doing, but uh, we, we wanted to be cautious. And so I uh, I worked with a friend of mine who owns a bike shop in town, and we rented space from them from October through March and then kind of launched our online business at the same time. And so that, that was a great way to launch it because we didn't, we, it didn't require nearly as much um, commitment, I guess, and, and resources. Uh, so we, we were there for six months, and then we moved into our own location um, in July of 2007. 
and then we've been here in Boulder uh, since then at the, at the same place. Boulder Nordic Sports is the North American distributor for several different lines. Some of them I'm familiar with, and, and some I'm not. Uh, Homacolon, I know, is uh, waxes, but you're also Skigo, Guru, and Magnar. Uh, give us a little background on those different lines, would you please? Yeah, this is Zach speaking. Um, yeah, I tried to interrupt you there. You're not familiar with them yet. But you will be. <laughs> this is our plan, our, our grand vision. Uh, you know, part of this is opportunity. Part of this is uh, preference. Um, Skigo came with Roger, and that was part of the really exciting part of our expansion this year was he's been bringing that line into the country for several years, and he has a really well-developed relationship with Chris Rameibeck, who's the uh, Swedish fellow who uh, took that over back in uh, 2001 or 2002. I've used Skigo wax for a long time. I picked some up from Maybeck at the pre-world uh, at the pre-Olympics in Soldier Hollow back in 2001, um, and uh, it's it's been a fantastic line for for a long, long time. And he's really pushed the development end of it, and so it it was uh, it was just a, a grand opportunity for us to to pick up both Roger who's a who's a really big hitter in the in the ski world and the the very well established wax line that he had already put together a market for. Uh the Holman Cole thing came along separately. Uh that opportunity became available uh in the early summer I guess and and when that came up and it was pretty much concurrent with uh, the possibility of having Roger, we all started talking about really changing the model for for wax distribution. Uh, every distributor out there is hawking one brand, and what we have always felt is that in the end it starts to undermine credibility when the answer is always our brand. Um, we've never worked that way with wax, and, and uh, you know, even when I was working back in Vermont, I always avoided any aff specific affiliation with a single brand because it was really important to me to remain neutral enough so that I could be testing everything, working with the best. And so in embracing a multi-brand uh, import model, um, we've, we've sort of taken on an approach that continues to... Uh, to embrace those same principles, and you know, I should say we've got we've got a bunch of other wax in the store as well. Uh, we're not we're not exclusively the brands that we import. Uh, what the import does is gives us the ability to um, to do a lot of aggressive uh, pricing for team sales with the high end waxes. Uh, there there is not a big retail market for pure fluorocarbons out there, but there is a a bit of a lack of information in the marketplace as to how much variation there is and and when to use these things and we felt that we could best support a rising level of sophistication and uh and a better experience among racers um by by having a direct sales model that allowed us to uh to work directly with teams um once the door was open on wax distribution and we were carrying a couple lines uh we started looking around and um the uh, the Guru and the Magnar are waxes that we've used a, a ton on World Cup and just were, were really difficult to get a hold of. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Mike Mappin up in uh, Canmore, Alberta, in Canada, who was bringing this stuff in, and I would gotten some stuff from him. Um, we were using using this stuff just a lot in racing, uh, both at World Cup and domestically, but uh, it was pretty much no-name wax in in the broader marketplace. Um, and the biggest problem we've had now is that as, as we start to test it at races and get it out there and in people's hands, um, we're, we're just, we're, we're perpetually behind. I think we're oversold on stuff and we just brought a bunch more guru in and it's gone. And, and, uh, so we're, we're, we're scrambling a little bit because, uh, we found that, um, yeah, the stuff that is dominant at a world cup level is also dominant domestically. And, uh, we can, we can add a lot of value to people's wax boxes. Tell me what you look for and what a skier should look for or talk to you about when you pick out a pair of skis for somebody. Contrast the difference between uh, a pair of skating skis for a 25-year-old racer versus a 45-year-old sometimes racer. 
there are a couple of considerations that we're looking for, and, and to simplify things to the greatest possible degree, let's, for the sake of argument, break them down into considerations of quality and fit. Uh, the very most important thing when we're selecting skis is to identify the highest quality skis. Uh, that's not something you can necessarily do on a flex bench. Um, you, you sort of have to know skis, and you have to know skis from the inside out. One of the reasons that we travel to Europe to visit the factories and try to understand how they're building the skis is that when we understand the materials and the, and the design process and we speak with the engineers, we get to know what they're trying to do better, and we understand what qualities they're trying to build into the skis, and then we can spot the, the best of those qualities in the production that, that comes out. Um, the core of our ski selection model is based on trying to pick the highest quality skis possible. We do not have time to have companies send us tons and tons of skis, sort through them, and send a lot of them back. Uh, so we, we tend to like to travel and pick skis. We have much better success. When we have a wall full of really high-quality skis, fitting people becomes relatively easy, and we have the luxury of working with known good materials. At that point, we can afford to look at you know, what is generally considered flex, but which is a vast oversimplification of a big range of concepts and ideas. Uh, I, I like to say that the ski has two relationships, one with the snow and one with the skier. And in fact, the ski has to translate what the skier does to the snow. Its relationship with the snow has, has a lot to do with load distribution and pressure distribution, how it puts the skier's weight onto the snow. And the relationship with the skier has a lot to do with the camber action, how it absorbs and transmits energy. Um, skis are dynamic, and we have to remember that their dynamic nature makes them very complex. So typically what we're looking for are, are load and pressure distributions that will fit the conditions that are targeted, and camber action uh, characteristics that will fit the skiing style of a skier. You asked about a, a younger skier, you know, a younger aggressive racer versus a uh, an older marathon skier. Well, you know, with with ski construction, model selection, and and some of the fit issues, we can try to emphasize stability um, instead of speed at all cost. With camber action, we can look at how a skier loads the ski, whether they load impulsively early in the load cycle or push smoothly toward the end, and uh, try, to, try to build these considerations into, this, into the ski selection so that uh, at 49K of a marathon, uh, the ski isn't fighting them so hard that they feel like curling up in a small ball and crying. Oh, very interesting. Uh, so the ideal... Uh, way for you to choose a ski would be for you to to observe the, how the person skis. Uh, you know, it's yeah. I would like to say that, but I need to re-emphasize the fact that quality is the most important thing. I could pull Chris Freeman's best pair of skate skis out of his fleet and hand it to you, and you would have a great pair of skis. I'm 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 not insulting you to say you're not Chris Freeman. Uh, but, you know, he's, he needs stable and easygoing skis, too. And when we find a fast pair of skis, good racers want them. That's our, that's our first job, is to find really good skis. Because once you get a great pair of skis, the, uh, the tolerances open way, way up. You can get away with a variety of different fit characteristics, and skiers can adapt as well as skis. So, uh, you know, our, our biggest, biggest job by far is to make sure that everything that we have in the store is selected to the absolute highest standard of quality. Once we've got that, then then the secondary consider, uh, you know consideration is the is the fit and the characteristics. And at that point, it is important for us to understand how a skier skis. And if we do have the opportunity to uh, to see a skier ski, then then we're way ahead. We also have some sort of uh, we have some questions we can ask to try to get to the root of things, and, and typically people will describe themselves more or less accurately. And, and when there are misunderstandings, they're often common ones. When you've talked to several hundred, maybe thousand people about the way they ski, you start to you start to learn what to listen for. So you know we can get a lot done over the phone. Um, if someone's in the store, sometimes I'll just ask them to sort of stand on one leg and shift their weight. You can learn a lot just just seeing someone move. But, yeah, all of these are in play. All of these considerations are in play. I know there's a lot of information on your website about the grinds, but give us a, take us through the grinding process and uh, tell us how you select 
the grind and the different steps? Um, first, maybe to talk in general terms about uh, about the steps of grinding a ski. I mean, the, the the most important thing that we do when we're grinding for most of our customers is uh, expose good base material. Most of the skis that come in are in rough shape, and even skis that have been very, very well cared for have been hardened off over time. And while that process is necessary, and in fact, uh, part of bringing any ski up to race speed over time, skis will just slow down with use. Um, I have often felt that it didn't even matter what grind we put on most of the skis because we were going to make such a big difference just opening up the base, getting into some live material, and getting a ski in good condition back out the door that people are going to be impressed. It's an easy job in that respect. Um, the equipment that we use and the, and the methods that we use are, are really uh, very dedicated to the specific qualities of high-quality Nordic racing base material. Um, so you know, we do a good job preserving the quality of the base and enhancing the quality of the performance because we're, because we're opening up good base material. The first thing we do is, uh, is metal scrape the ski. Um, and that, it's like, uh, it's like shining a light right into it. Once we take that first layer of hardened base off, we can see exactly where you've, uh, where you've burned the ski or where you haven't. And, and basically we can, <laughs> we can audit your tuning behavior. We can see, you can, we can, we can see what you've done and give you some feedback if, if, uh, if you haven't been treating the ski as well as you should be. Um, and we, we also get a sense for how much material is going to be necessary to remove in order to get into good material. We're also doing most of our flattening there. The grinders that we run are not designed to remove a lot of material quickly. They're very, very mild machines. They're for putting patterns on skis. And so, you know, when it comes to flattening, uh, it's much faster with hand tools if you know how to use them. But that's also, you know, the highest skilled part of the process. Nathan is the only guy I've ever been able to hand a metal scraper and have him start successfully just flattening skis in a way that's effective as part of the process. Most people will take a metal scraper and make more work for themselves rather than less. And so, you know, I think uh, not to not to toot our horn too loudly, but um, but the two of us are probably uh, two of the best hand tuners um, in the industry. Uh, we're really, really good with hand tools. We both have a background in woodworking, and I think that, you know, we're, we're accustomed to using, um, using tools that way. Uh, so that, that's the first step. Then we flatten and polish the ski on the stone. We want to get just a blank, flat finish uh, before we put a final structure on. And the, uh, yep, the final pattern is, is the least of the process. Um, but, but that's when we get into questions of design and coming up with patterns. Um, and that's, that's sort of the second part of your question. How do we select a grind and, and design a grind? And the, the, uh, the short answer is there's no short way of doing it. It takes a lot of testing and a lot of experience. Um, I realized the first year I was grinding that the, that the patterns, the, the recipes that were handed to me with my machine just weren't working in North America. We have really different snow from anywhere in the world. This is why most of the factory grinds, as good as the work has become from the ski factories, most of the factory grinds on new skis are not competition worthy in North America. We have different snow. Uh, so you really, you really can't replace a lot of time on snow. We're always trying to balance considerations. The more structure you have, the less uh, moisture-related, suction-related friction you're going to have. The less adhesion cohesion, you, you create turbulence and you, and you create drainage and you, and you get rid of moisture. But the more structure you have, the more mechanical friction you have, the more surface area and the more edges you have, and the more you're going to interact mechanically with a snowpack. So we're always trying to balance uh, the qualities of, of uh, suction in the common nomenclature and mechanical friction. And it's, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a balancing act, and there are an infinite number of solutions to most of these problems. So we're just always chasing the best of them. Well, one more grind question. How yeah. often should I have my skis ground, and how many times can I grind a pair of skis? Yeah, you should probably have your skis ground twice a week or maybe, you know, <laughs> at, least, at least once a week. No, uh, <laughs> most of our customers grind their skis yearly. Uh, how often you can, how many times you can grind a ski is really a question of how much base I have to take off at the start of the process. Um, a new ski comes with a solid millimeter of base. And most of our grinds, especially our cold ones, are, uh, are, are removing, are, are basically cutting an impression that's less than four hundredths of a millimeter deep. Um, so, you know, 
And if if it's just a question of of taking a, a fresh grind without without damaged base material and applying a new structure, well, you can do 30 or 40 grinds, no problem. Uh, in practical terms, we are always having to remove a bit of base material, and um, I would say the average lifespan is six to eight, maybe ten grinds on a pair of skis for someone who's caring for them well. They're really, really uh, extremely well cared for skis, um, can probably take 20 grinds, uh, but, you know, I've, I've, you know, some of Freeman's best skis have, have been great in wet conditions and have had huge rills put in them. And so I'm taking off, you know, two-tenths of a millimeter each time they're ground. And, and, you know, he's got one pair of skis that's been ground six times and is almost done, even though it's been cared for at a World Cup level. So it, it, it depends. You know, it's, it's really a question of how the ski is treated and, and how much base we've got to take off to get down to, down to the next grind. Zach, what what have you, you talked about snow conditions? What what is the difference with snow here compared to other places? Is is it really that different? Uh, it is. I, I you know it's white and slippery usually, <laughs> but there the similarity ends. And I don't know what the answer is for this. Uh, I think most of Europe is extremely close to water. Uh, prevailing weather systems come right off the Atlantic, and you're never very far from the ocean by you know, by the by comparison with say the the high mountain west, which is still you know how many hours drive from the Pacific Ocean? It's, it's you're way way inland. You get to the Midwest and you've got just incredibly dry air. The you, you know the, those uh, those Alberta Clipper systems that form up over Alberta and then and then come across the the, the Canadian Plains are are working with almost no moisture at all. You get this convective lifting out of those systems that will squeeze moisture out of a stone. It's incredible. There's the the snow we get is probably more like Siberia than anything in most of Europe. And um it's it's just different. Uh even the east um where we get these nor'easter systems where uh, you know a cyclone will rip up the Atlantic coast and pull a whole bunch of moisture on board. We're still running finer structures than most of what's done. Uh, anywhere except, you know, I, I guess maybe uh, coastal Norway is a little bit similar to the east in, in, in what That's I've heard. But, interesting. But, no, it's, it's, it's just different. Mm -hmm. This is Nathan chiming in here. It's, it's astounding because even, like, in, when you're in Central Europe, you, you, the snow's falling out of the sky, and you think, oh, I, I can nail this. I know exactly what to do. And unless you've done it in Europe before at, at that venue almost um it's it's really tough you, because you take your your tool your bag of tricks from north america and they just some of them they work but you you, you have to work at it a lot harder and you definitely have to test a lot more until you get used to it i i really appreciate the excuse you've just given me for my performance when i was at <laughs> world masters at lilyhammer it wasn't my fault <laughs> I couldn't have known. Yep. Let's uh, switch gears a little bit. Uh, Zach, uh, I know you're doing a lot with the Olympics this year and specifically with the project, uh, Olympic development project. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Well, my wife got a job coaching up in Canada a couple of years ago. Uh, in the in May of 2007, she moved to Squamish, B.C., which is right between Vancouver and Whistler, very close to the Olympic venue. Um, and I, I moved out there. It took me a year to sort of, not a year, it took me three months to sort of close up shop back east, and I moved out there September of 2007. During that summer, I got a call from Pete Bordenberg, who had uh, found out that I was going to be out there, and, and I, I had done some work with the ski team before, um, you know, in, in terms of uh, service and grinds, and uh, we put our heads together and decided that we would see if those guys could come up with uh, some modest funding to try to buy some of my time and attention at the Olympic venue and, and get a little jump on the competition. As it turns out, the weather at the Callahan Valley, uh, the Olympic venue, is uh, by far the most challenging I've ever seen. I spent the first year up there, that winter 2007-2008, just uh, making skis really, really slow. And it was it was very frustrating experience. Um, it's every, every year has been different. I still haven't seen the same snow twice, and the only good news is that now I'm adapting very much more quickly and learning. I can come up with solutions, you know, in a day or two instead of a, a year or two. Um, so it's, it's been worthwhile, but it's, it's going to be a challenging 
situation up there. Mm-hmm. Will you be grinding for other teams besides the United States and Canada? No, no. My contract with uh, with the U.S. team is exclusive. I, I haven't ground any skis for Canadian national team members. Uh, I have done some grinding for Canadian racers. Um, but, you know, the, the Canadians had first option on me. When I was moving up there, uh, Amy and I went and checked it out, and the people developing the venue um, – asked if I'd be interested in, in operating the grinder at the venue and they wanted to clear it with the Canadians. I have the same grinder at Tazari RP23 that the Canadian national team has, but uh, they weren't interested in working with me, and, in fact, they asked that I not be allowed into the venue, um, which isn't really their call. Uh, but, no, since, since I uh, set up a relationship with U.S. ski team specific to the venue, I'm not doing service for any other national teams. You uh, all offer a number of camps and clinics, uh, including a Thursday night program from December through uh, mid-March. Tell us about how you started the clinics, how many participants you have, and how successful they've been. Those, um, you know, like we we discussed earlier, that all kind of grew out of the the Factory Team Academy program that that I started way back when with uh, the Factory Team guys and and girls. And we... uh, it's it's always been uh, something that we feel is a, a great way to um, sort of spread the gospel and, and what we're talking about. Um, anytime we get out on the snow and you know doing service or coaching people, that's that's where we really excel. Um, unfortunately, the the business model um, you know drives us towards the skis and the ski service because that's where we can actually make a living at it. And so the, the, the camps and coaching have, um, they've been sort of a hobby and, uh, there, there's something that we're, we're very much interested in developing, but we're still finding the way to make a balance so that we get, um, you know, we, we, we can, we can make some money and, and do all the ski work, but we're not so completely overwhelmed, um, by the skis that we're, we're out getting out and doing, uh, stuff on snow with people um we've done clinics uh it, it ranges broadly and we we do a lot of wax clinics or service clinics um you know in the shop somebody will come in and they're intimidated by you know uh, waxing with floral powders and so we bring them into the back and fire up an iron and uh, burn some powders and show them how to do it and so the, all the clinics have kind of arisen out of that and our our ability to communicate what we know um, in terms of technique and coaching. Um, so, you know, we do our, our weekly wax clinics in, in the shop. Uh, basically, people show up. We've got a, a bunch of benches, and we show them what they want to know. And uh, that's that's been really fun and, and successful. And then, you know, it goes for the, to the other extreme where we've done 10-day uh, camps in New Zealand where we're, you know, driving uh we're we're covering pretty much everything you know we're talk, we're covering the ski service we're covering the the technique we're covering the training and uh so th- those are things we we want to get more involved in um we we're trying to again we'll, we'll go to New Zealand again this summer in in August um and we're also looking at doing a couple other trips uh we're we're trying to organize uh a ski service clinic um it with Fisher and Atomic in Austria where we uh, d- we're going to do tours of the the Fisher and Atomic factories and then go up on the glacier and actually ski on skis that we've picked at the at those factories so we'll we'll bring people through that process and uh both Fisher and, and Atomic are really excited to work with us on that um and and people will actually you know we'll we'll go out we'll put skis on snow and they can pick which skis they want to take home with them so that's going to be a pretty cool experience um and then the other one that we're working on is uh, doing oslo um world championships in 2011 i think that's going to be a kind of once in a lifetime opportunity to see something special um with cross-country skiing and i, I at, at one uh point when i was at the world championships in the czech republic in february i um i got into the stadium and Lucas Bauer, the Czech, skied through, and the the noise was just so incredible, and the the energy was was 
pretty amazing. It, it like literally, you know, the hairs raised up on the back of my neck. And I think that Oslo will magnify that by about a thousand. Um, so really looking forward to that trip and doing some ski service there and, and trying to kind of spread that, uh, that excitement about skiing. So it, it, your personal coaching service that much, uh, from the, what you said about your time, that must be fairly exclusive then. Yeah, I think both Zach and I are, are working with a, a handful of people, and we're, we're probably not doing a very good job at it. Um, all the all the people that that I work with, I've I've, I've sort of worked with for years, and it, we have an understanding that I'm not going to be super available in in uh, December and January. But um, because we have, they they know what to do, and and I've become more of a mentor and than a you know somebody who stands out there and clicks the stopwatch or something um so yeah i think zach can can answer that for what he's doing i know he's much more involved with chris freeman's uh work than than i am with my athletes but yeah it's it's tough to to make it all go and especially uh you know the the reality is that that's probably what we if we could focus on one thing that would probably be a lot of it um at least more of the time that we would spend um but the reality is that at this point, uh, that's what pays, the skis pay the bill. So we got to work on that stuff first. So, what's the big future plan? <laughs> World domination. We're going to take it all over. <laughs> Pretty soon, there will be no other distributors, no other shops. You're just going to have to come to us, and then we're just going to sell you what we want See, and charge a lot of money for it. Mike, Mike wants a, Mike wants a store in Traverse City, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, why we're, not? <laughs> we're, uh, we're we're trying to figure that out. You know, it, it's so far it's it's been um, we we we've gotten to the point where I, I'm actually starting to get fairly good at at telling people, yeah, that's a great idea, but we can't do it <laughs> because we just don't have the resources right now. But we've got a, a long list of uh, someday maybe uh, things to do, and I, I think that we'll we'll be busy for years to come, uh, kind of just pushing new ideas and 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 bringing what we've learned um, to to people <laughs> to the masses. Yeah, I think that's the most important thing to bear in mind is that we are active students of this. You know, we're not sitting around trying to cash in because it gets boring pretty fast if we're not out there doing it. I think both Nathan and I would love to have a little more time for our own skiing in the winter, but the reality is that we're both really stimulated by our involvement with sport at all levels. And, uh, you know, the model that we talked about, trying to bring um, bring really high-level, World Cup-level service um, to interested customers doesn't work unless we're involved at the highest level. And um, so I think it's, you know, the the thing that has set us apart is our investment in this. And, you know, this this goes right through most of our staff as well. We've got a we've got a fantastic staff here of uh of people working with us um who who all bring a unique set of experiences and qualities to to the business. And we you know, Nathan sent us all an email last week reminding us that it's our job to get on the snow and get to races and, and stay involved, even though the business is looming over us and, you know, demanding a lot of our time. Um, we we do well at what we do because we stay very involved at, at all levels in the sport. And whatever comes, that's going to remain the core of, of what we're doing as long as we're doing it. How is the snow out there? Uh, great. Really nice. I mean, I'm from the uh, east. It's, it's the ground's <laughs> white mostly. <laughs> so, you know, any anything that looks bluish or whitish and maybe a little bit brownish is all good with me. So, yeah, no, skiing's good. No excuses. Uh, Eldora's great skiing. Uh, it's 9,200 feet at the base lodge, but, you know, we, us, us, even us low-altitude guys can learn to deal with that. Well, I... Or- Time is up. Is there anything else that uh, you'd like to tell our listeners about the shop and your services? Uh, no, I think uh, thanks for, for listening to us spout. Um, hopefully it's been interesting, and uh, we appreciate all of the, all of the loyal customers and, and people who, uh, 
who are sort of our cheerleaders. So thanks to everybody for letting us do this and play with skis all the time. It's, it's a lot of hard work, but it, it is a lot of fun, and we enjoy it. That's great. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today because uh, we know you're very busy with the active ski season and, of course, the Olympics coming up. So the best of luck to you both with the continued success of uh, the stores and all your services. Thanks. Great. Thanks. Thank you. We appreciate you downloading Episode 8 of Berkey Web Today, and we do hope that you will subscribe to our podcast so that you will not miss out on future episodes. If this is the first time you are listening to the podcast, our past episodes are available on our website at podcast.berkeyweb.com. You will find show notes and links to all the stories. Berkey Web Today is also on iTunes. We have a lot of interesting news and interviews that we have planned before, during, and after the Berkey, so please come back. Also, leave your feedback by writing to webmaster at berkeyweb.com. For more information about other podcasts available through the Eero Podcast Network, go to the website at epn.ero.com. Special thanks to Mark Fransky for allowing us to use his song, 12th Street Stomp, as the theme song for our podcast. Mark's work can be found at www.banjodog.com. Take care and ski fast. Mm-hmm.